welcome to another episode of Crypto Study Hall. I'm your host, Kirsten Wagner. And I'm your host, Kate Goldman. And today we have a guest, Michael Greenwald, on. Yes, welcome, Michael. So for those of you who don't know Michael, he spent the last five years as an advisor to the Tiedemann Association, um, helping them with digital asset education. He is a longtime friend of mine and an expert on digital assets and is deeply involved into the geopolitics in the United States and internationally. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kate and Kirsten. It's wonderful to be with Study Hall. So thank you so much. Fabulous. And so I mentioned Tiedemann, but Michael, you have some exciting and recent career news. Do you want to give us just a little bit on that? I know you can't uh, divulge too much as it is extremely <laughs> early days, but you know, just a, a quick word on uh, what, what's, what's in the future for you. No, thank you. It's it's been an exciting time. Yeah, it's been a wonderful five years at Tiedemann, uh, helping them lead their digital asset education uh, practice. And um, I'm going to be taking an executive role with uh, Amazon Web Services later this month and uh, really excited to join Amazon, lean in, and uh, be able to share more uh, with you and your listeners in the future. Absolutely. Um, it'll be really, really exciting to see what you do there. I know that you're joining, you know, just a host of incredible people at AWS and Amazon. So I'm looking forward to the updates of the future and, you know, I know it's going to be awesome, but switching gears a little bit. Um, so tell us a little bit, you know, you are located in Florida, which has sort of been dubbed, I mean, more specifically Southern Florida which is all of a sudden becoming the crypto capital of the United States. Um, like, what are you seeing in the state? What are conversations like down there? I know in DC, there's definitely um, a different attitude towards crypto, although it is happily warming by the day. But what is, you know, what's the update from South Florida? Well, the update is strong. I mean, I, uh, I was... You know, just in Miami uh, with uh, the mayor there, and I think it's it's very clear that uh, digital assets have already been legitimized here in Florida. Uh, they're in full swing, and I think the NFT and the contemporary art community uh, has considered them legitimate for a while, and so. I think there's this great renaissance taking place in the digital asset space in Florida. And I expect that uh, other elected leaders will take that torch that's been set in Florida and will try to emulate uh, communities and creative economy communities uh, across the United States. So it's uh, it's a fascinating time. And I think uh, there's a clear recognition that digital assets will be living alongside uh, potentially a future digital dollar in the future. Absolutely. Michael, I had a question for you. So where do you think we are on the time horizon of kind of the future of art and NFTs? You mentioned the torch has been lit. Are we just at the beginning of, of something? And how long do you see like it to take for kind of mass adoption of NFTs for art, like as far as well, decades ahead or years ahead? I, I think that if you look at the OpenSea data from tw 2021, you had around a 720 million 
user transactions and already last month in January you had over a billion. So this is it's definitely lighting fire more and more. I think that with other competitors to OpenSea that will pop up and with formalized companies like Adidas and Patagonia and Walmart and Nike all getting into the NFT metaverse, you know, game, I think this is only going to grow and grow. Um, And also I think that you're seeing people look at this really as a long-term investment. And And I did note that like the monthly NFT trading volume in January, I think hit an all-time high of $6 billion. Like where do you see that year on year growth going like in the next year or so? Do you see that? I mean, continuing at this kind of seems like almost an exponential rate of growth at this point. Well, I, I think that there has been a lot of growth in the NFT market space, and you're seeing that become more and more formalized. So you, you, there will be some volatility. There will be some that will fall off. But I do think that the use of smart contracts uh, and the Ethereum blockchain uh, is just beginning. And I, I look at what happened with the Banksy piece, which was a physical piece last year, and you're seeing how that got sold in uh, Ethereum uh, rather than dollars and euros, which was a really interesting data point. And then the other thing is you're seeing this tokenization uh, and the growth of DAOs start to take place where uh, your your average consumer can have a piece uh, of something of great value. And so that is going to be a space to watch, but it's also going to be a space to watch from a regulatory perspective, given the Treasury report uh, that came out regarding the art market last week. And reading between the lines, it noted NFTs, and I'm sure that my Treasury colleagues are going to be looking closely at that environment going forward. I saw recently a report from OpenSea that something, and this was self-reported, they disclosed this, Something upwards of 80% of the NFTs listed are either scams or fakes or fraudulent or just have some sort of, you know, illicit component to them. Do you see that as posing a threat to mass adoption of NFTs? I think back to like early days of crypto when, you know, it had this, this cloud over it of like, oh, you know, this is for criminals, this is for money laundering, this is, you know, something that, you know, facilitates the dark net. Is that a little bit of the potential response to this recent report from OpenSea? Or do you think that, I mean, granted, this this article didn't get a ton of coverage, but is this potentially, um, you know, going to cut into its potential outputs as an industry? Well, it's a very positive step that OpenSea self-reported. And that's, I really compare it to like uh, suspicious activity reports that FinCEN requires, you know, with transactions more than 10,000. So I think you're going to, the fact that OpenSea did that is a very positive step. I expect others to follow in turn and the self-reporting will be important. Um, I think in any industry, when it's beginning, there's going to be illicit activity. And so that's going to be no different than the NFT industry. Um, I I think that what's coming out of countries of authoritarian regimes like China and the growth of NFTs there is really a signal that 
people are trying to move money uh, out of countries where they normally couldn't because of central bank oversight and control. So I still think there are a lot of intelligence gaps on how much activity is illicit in the NFT market, because let's remember there's illicit activity in the contemporary art market. So I think a firm uh, like Chain Analysis or Elliptic will will be very helpful uh, for them to come out with their own reports generally uh, with no broad bias uh, regarding the NFT market space, given what Chain Analysis did recently with illicit activity being below 1%. Right. Yeah, I was I was reading that recent report from Chainalysis and they, you know, they make an excellent point that even though the number or like the reports of illicit activity are up, when you compare it to how much activity is happening in the space, it's actually down. And so, you know, you see all these stories. I mean, just this week it broke of the couple who laundered like multi-billion dollars in crypto, which was just outstanding and shocking how they got away with this for so long. But companies like Elliptic and Chainalysis, they're really, you know, doing a great job at shedding light on this. And because of the, you know, just the simple nature of distributed ledger technologies and blockchain, it is not anonymous, it is pseudonymous. And so criminal activity is par for the course, but it is definitely being you know, rooted out, found out, shed light on it. And I think more and more we'll see, especially as, you know, the federal regime broadens and strengthens, we'll see a lot of that um, that activity, you know, falling by the wayside and becoming less and less on our news feeds and our, you know, the news cycle that we're seeing around these topics. Exactly. Now, Michael, and that will just be another sign of greater legitimization is is more self-reporting. And I think that just shows that this is a market that's here to stay. And there'll be, you know, you know, to your previous question, greater growth in the metaverse and decentraland and how that will disrupt real estate, philanthropy, gaming, uh, marketing, advertising. This really has a replication effect uh, from the NFT space. Now, Michael, what I heard you say about Open Seas was that they took a really great step in being transparent and kind of acknowledging um, the different types of activities happening. I think that is kind of part of the bigger question people have of how do you encourage more transparency and openness of the industry? And what are your thoughts on kind of a self-regulatory structure versus um, you know government regulation? I know there are a number of groups that are supporting kind of an SRO-like structure for either crypto or NFTs. Is that enough? Um, and how? what are some of the key areas of clarity that you think are needed on regulation? So I think if you look at global financial institutions right now, self-reporting is a part of their you know, KYC and their regime. And SARS is a great example of that. So I would I would choose a middle road. I don't want to stymie innovation. I want to promote it. But I think also industry is looking for digital asset regulatory guardrails. And what that means is a compass for industry to understand how to operate within this growing environment. And Kate, as you and I have discussed, 
I really see the decentralized space living alongside stable coins like Paxos and Circle, and then living al- alongside central bank digital currencies, whether it's a digital dollar or a euro or yen, um, hopefully not a won uh, in the future digital wallet, but we'll see. So I do think, uh, you know, Kirsten, that self-reporting will be part of it, but it will have to be part of a greater regulatory guardrail uh, regime. I think if you look at the, the the president's working group on stable coins, it's it makes sense that they're going to start at that level of financial institutions. But I do think there needs to be a combination because the government needs these companies to want to voluntarily share and vice versa. It can't just be private industry sharing. It has to be a mixture of information sharing on both ends. Absolutely. And you know, Michael, you and I were speaking about this a little bit earlier. The sanctions piece, it is a whole different world to sanction crypto payments versus bank payments. And it absolutely happens. And it is, you know, part of the regulatory regime of any sort of crypto company is that, you know, OFAC, they're beholden to the same standards as any, you know, fiat or bank administrator would be. But with crypto, it is a little bit more complicated. And, you know, when you we hear discussions about Russia and everything that's happening and the impending likelihood of sanctions in that respect, I think it is going to be absolutely imperative that the government, the US government works really, really closely with these crypto companies to help them help each other and just sort of create a little bit of that reciprocity and create a framework where, you know, Coinbase or Gemini or any other company like that, like they know what to do in the instance of, you know, sanctions with Russia or complications or just how that looks in that self-reporting. So it'd be interesting yeah, to see. I would, I would quickly goes. say that. You know, we're back at a very similar point when when the team that I was working on at Treasury was looking at the sanctions escalation ladder against Russia. Obviously, SWIFT is on the table. That should be the last resort because ultimately it's just creating a authoritarian central bank mindset of going around the dollar and SWIFT is antiquated. It needs to be updated. It's in the process of being updated. But it's just giving central banks and authoritarian regimes like Russia, China, and Iran uh, a new incentivization to work ar- along uh, around the dollar. And you know, my fear, Kate, is that the the digital ruble uh, or the digital yuan would be forcing countries into future contracts in those currencies rather than dollars, and that would be something to watch regarding the Belt and Road uh, going forward. I couldn't agree more. Um, so switching, I know we have just a few minutes left, you know, just to round it out on a little bit of a, a lighter note. Um, you know, it'd be great to hear, like, what are you super excited for for the coming year? 2022 is 100% going to be a massive year for, you know, adoption, regulation, really cool, cool projects. You know, Metaverse, you mentioned briefly, this e-gaming like what is getting you the most excited right now in 2022? 
well, I really think this is the year of the CBDC. And so I'm really excited about two pilot programs central banks are doing in South Korea and Israel. And what's interesting about those two pilot projects is that they're, they are testing Ethereum on their blockchain. And they're using Ethereum in their pilot stage with uh, CBDCs. And so I'm interested to see the results of that, lessons learned, what worked, what didn't, and whether other central banks start to use Ethereum given what Israel and South Korea are embarking upon. And I'm also looking forward to see how uh, you know initiatives like the Di- Digital Dollar Project here in the United States, um, what they learn and how the United States can create a new era of dollar innovation, Kate, and ultimately use a second iteration of Bretton Woods, a digital Bretton Woods, to really work with our allies on how digital assets are going to live alongside sovereign digital currencies. And that, to me, is really the question, is how these governments are going to regulate in even countries like India and Russia, we've seen that this past week. So I think that's going to be interesting, the divide between the authoritarian countries, the non-authoritarian countries, and what that looks like for the future of the digital asset space going into later this year. Absolutely. And we have to give a shout out to Jennifer Lasseter, who is all three of our friends and just you know the most wonderful person and a massive you know, advocate for CBDCs. Of course, she just joined the Digital Dollar Project as their managing director. So really awesome to see. And co-host of Crypto Study Hall for two episodes. So we need to get her back (laughs) for crowning achievement. But we know we're out of time. So Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you on again as you get, you know, further into your next role and just super excited to hear your perspective and also a little bit scared, honestly, about the national security implications of what you discussed with the countries, um, some of the countries you mentioned, but a lot of of food for thought. So thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Kirsten and Kate. It was such a pleasure and I look forward to uh, being back.